Beginning in chapter 22 of the Confession, in particular, we have now come finally to chapter 4, um, which it, or paragraph 4, I'm sorry, <clears throat> which in many ways feels kind of like a continuation of paragraph 3. Um, paragraph 3 kind of lays basic ground rules for prayer. Um, it just kind of, anything about prayer, everything about prayer, it's quite exhaustive. Um, but it's more just giving us a, a positive picture of prayer. With, with paragraph four, we kind of enter into the fray again with Rome, um, and it particularly deals with uh, the doctrine, the topic of praying for the dead in purgatory, which, which we, of course, deny. So we'll look at that largely for today. We will also move on just to the beginning of paragraph four. Paragraph four, I'm sorry, five, <clears throat> I'm all over the place. Paragraph five deals with what we, we, we call elements of worship. Um, elements. Those are things that are commanded. They are parts of worship. That's how our confession calls them. Um, there are some things that are parts of worship, some things that are not, and so they are not to be in worship. Um, it's kind of a, it out, it's an outflowing, outworking of the regulative principle. If it's a part of worship, it's commanded to be. If it's not commanded, then it's not a part of worship. We will see, uh, not today, but later on down the road, there are some elements, um, well, all elements, rather, have attending circumstances. So there's a difference between an element or a part of worship um, and certain circumstances of that worship, um, <clears throat> which we'll look at later. In fact, chapter one of the confession, I think it's in paragraph five, it says, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God in the government of church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word of God which are always to be observed. So notice that last phrase, Everything we do is to somehow be governed by the Word of God, and yet there are some things which Scripture has really only given us general rules for, certain guidelines. Um, what kind of chairs should we use in worship, right? Well, Scripture doesn't really talk about that. Um, we can look at the light of nature, and what are kind of normal chairs uh, common to human actions in societies in general gatherings? gatherings? Well, the kind of chairs you're sitting in, right? Those aren't elements of worship, they're circumstances. Um, and so we'll, we'll deal with that much more uh, in, in further uh, Sunday schools. But we will kind of get into paragraph five a little bit. <clears throat> well, with that, let's go ahead and begin with paragraph four. If you have your confession, open up to chapter 22 and we'll read paragraph four together. It says... Prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Well, this paragraph uh, is dealing with a lot of things, actually. There's a lot of different ways we can take certain things. <clears throat> First, the first phrase is, prayer is to be made for things lawful. 
On the one hand, this kind of relates back to what we saw about prayer in general in paragraph three, that prayer is to be according to the will of God. Obviously, something is only lawful if God permits it. Uh, if, If he has said this is according to his will as it's revealed in his word, then it's lawful. If it's contrary to the will of God, it is unlawful. I think, however, this phrase probably also has uh, something further in mind uh, uh, that would have been very common in that day. It's something that older Reformed writers speak about, which is the sanctifying of lawful things by prayer. The sanctifying of lawful things by prayer. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. First Timothy chapter four, four through five. Paul says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. <clears throat> Here in the context, uh, Paul is talking about a number of things uh, which Um, Various kinds of heretics condemn, all of which are lawful, such as marriage, uh, and specifically he's dealing with eating eating certain foods. They they have dietary laws. Since the dietary laws have been taken away, it is now lawful to eat pork, right? That's lawful. It's not to be rejected. Even pork is good, and it can be received. You may do do so or not do so. You have that liberty now. And yet Paul says that in the partaking of these things, even though they're lawful, we are still to sanctify them by prayer. We are to give thanks, uh, and we are to give, and he also says that the food is made holy by the word and prayer. Now, Paul does not mean that food becomes ceremonially holy, uh, or as various things become ceremonially holy under the law. Rather, he's speaking more in terms of things that are lawful, and he's speaking about having a good conscience. The word makes the food holy. How? Well, in the sense that the word of God has declared all such things to be lawful. This is no longer unholy, right? Pork is no longer unclean. Remember, holy and clean are kind of interchangeable in a lot of ways. That's kind of how it's being used here. The word of God has therefore sanctified it. It's, it's made holy now. It's also sanctified by faith in that word. It's not just the word. More, when he says it's sanctified by the word for the individual, it's the believer in their conscience believing and approving that this is a lawful thing to do. Um, Puritans would say that if you're going to do something lawful um, and not sin in your conscience, it's necessary that you approve it in your conscience. And, And we do that by believing in the word of God, what it is said about such food. Furthermore, it's made holy by prayer as well. In the giving of thanks, we sanctify it in the sense that it is set apart for the glory of God. Paul says, whether you eat or do not eat, do all to the glory of God. And so you're saying, I am doing this not for my own good, but for the glory of God. And in that sense, we sanctify it by by prayer. The Reformed held that this practice of sanctifying lawful things for the purpose of a good conscience and the glory of God was not just to be done for food alone, but rather all lawful things. 
Not in the sense that in every minute of every day we are consciously having to sanctify everything by prayer, but that generally there is a sanctifying of lawful things for the sake of conscience. Listen to what William Perkins says in Discourse of Conscience, which we, we dealt with so much. He says, I add further that things indifferent, you could say things lawful, such as outward liberty, riches, the single estate, or singleness, marriage, food, drink, apparel, buildings even. We might say anything. We could even say ourselves acts of recreation, right? All things that are lawful. These may be used freely because they are neither commanded by God nor forbidden and in themselves considered they may be used or not used without breach of conscience. The right manner of using them is to sanctify them by the word and prayer. He points to our passage, 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. And not only some of them, but the use of them all, food, drink, marriage, are thus to be sanctified as the place before noted declares. Paul sanctified his journey in this manner, Acts 21, 5. If you look in that passage, I'll just read it real quick, Acts 21, 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. So they prayed at the outset of, of the journey, certainly asking for blessing on it. Um, I don't know that they were necessarily doing it for the purpose of good conscience, but they're setting out to do something and so they ask for God's blessing on it. I know for, for Annika and I as a habit, when we're about to uh, go on a long journey or a drive, um, we typically pray. We pray for, for God's traveling mercies. Perhaps you do that with your family as well. But this, this really should be done for all, all kind of big things in which you're giving thanks to God. You're receiving them thankfully. Um, if you were to have a, a day of fun at Six Flags with your family or, or, or go to a baseball game, I, I think it's actually very good. It's a good habit when you get there to say, Let's just pray and thanks God, thank God for this, what we're about to enjoy. We have this liberty, and let's, let's sanctify this for the glory of God. Let's go have fun. Let's, let's yell and try to say all kinds of hurtful things to the opposing side, as I've gone with people who love yelling things at the pitchers and stuff like that. You stink. And it's like, that's fun. We can, we can have a beer. We can have a hot dog or something. But let's do all we do to the glory of God as we enjoy this good thing. That, that's what the, the reform, that's what they meant when they talked about sanctifying things by the word and by prayer. And I would encourage you, just perhaps as you do that, that's what you're doing when you pray for a meal. You're really, you're really doing what Paul commands there. But I would say do it for other larger things as well. Um, if you're about even, I don't know, I'll leave that to your conscience when and where you do it. But it is something, and, and I do think that that's a little bit of what paragraph four is probably also talking about as well. Any questions about that? Have any of you guys ever heard of that before? You have, some of you. I think it's good. It's a cool way to enjoy things. Um, I think it's cool. I, I don't know that we've always done this, but there's been times when I've sat down with brothers uh, to have a beer together. And we're not eating, right? And you just say, let's just give thanks for this. Like, this is good. That's a good way to honor the Lord. Uh, you're making it holy. You're setting it apart for the glory of God. Um, and it's, it's really something that's, that's very good to do. Well, paragraph four continues. It says, prayer is to be made for things lawful 
and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. In this last part here, there are several things going on. And as I said, the confession now begins to enter into some polemic with Rome, namely that we are not to pray for the dead. Before it does that, though, before it rejects that practice, it kind of establishes positively for whom we are to pray. Okay, we've seen it kind of doing this at times. It's not just negative, it's also positive. So it does this here first. First, it says that prayer is to be made for all sort of men living. I guess there's two kinds of things in that phrase. On the one hand, they're only living men, right? We don't pray for the dead. That's kind of what it's saying. You're only praying for those that are living. And furthermore, it's all sorts of men we are praying for. Probably the confession is saying not just believers, right? All sorts. Um, I think it clearly has 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 in mind. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, godly and dignified in every way. However, there is a sort of exception to this rule. Are there people we can pray for who aren't alive yet? But they're not living. Yeah, but that's not the same thing as praying for the dead, right? We can pray for, it says, the confession, those who are that shall live hereafter. What's that, what, what that's talking about? I'm going to lose my voice today. <clears throat> Last night when we were singing the, the very last line of uh, A Mighty Fortress, I was like, Ugh. I was like, oh boy, it's going to be interesting tomorrow. Um, what this is talking about is essentially the unborn, future generations. It's perfectly fine to pray for them. Um, there, are, there are a few, there's not a lot, but there are some examples of this, I think we can see in Scripture. Um, the confession cites... 2 Samuel 7, 29, where David says, Now therefore may it please you uh, to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken with your blessing that the house of your servant shall be blessed forever. Now that's a little bit unique to David because he's in a covenant with God. But he is also praying really for the, the continuance of his house which is really to pray for his future descendants. It's not just a physical house. Your descendants were your house. That's really the meaning of it. So he's praying for generations yet unborn. Even our Lord, um, obviously we have to be careful of doing, just saying, well, Jesus did it, therefore we can. But he prayed for us as well when we were yet unborn. He prayed for all disciples in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples who were with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I'm sure that was a reference even to those who were alive then who would yet believe, perhaps like Paul the Apostle. But I think it, it's really all who will. Certainly Christ would pray for all his church, his, his uh, future uh, church members as well he prays for. Um, and so in that sense, we would, we would say there's, there's nothing wrong um, obviously, with praying for your children, but even your children's children. Um, God, would you, would you not only make my children to be godly parents, would you bless them with godly children? Would you use their children 
Um, would you use, uh, you know, the children that one day these kids will have in this church one day? Will you make our, our present children godly parents so that generations of sovereign joy will continue? That's, that's perfectly acceptable to pray for. That's lawful. The confession continues, but not for the dead. We are not to pray for the dead for several reasons. First, if they are in heaven, they do not need our prayers. They have everything they need. They lack nothing. They are very happy. <laughs> I'll tell you this stupid story, but it made me laugh so... It was a comedy sketch where this guy said he came up with an idea um, to record a video of a dog before it died and add a talking voice so it could... You should look into this, Josh. Um, so it could... It could tell the children after it died that it was in heaven. And so there's a vision of this dog, and then he, this, he says, Hi, it's me, Maddie. I'm so sorry I died. I'm in heaven now, and I'm so happy, so I won't be coming back, right? And then the little kid cries. He, he goes, That's not how Maddie sounds, and he cries. Um, <laughs> but if you're in heaven, you're happy. You don't want to come back. You're good. They don't need our prayers, right? <clears throat> Second, if they are not in heaven, they are beyond our prayers. Our prayers cannot benefit them. There is no repentance in hell. There's no coming, coming out of it. Thirdly, there's nothing in Scripture that would lead us to pray for the dead. One of the Scriptures that the Confession cites, um, this is actually a good point, I think, is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Turn with me there real quick. 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's very sad chapter in many ways. It's the death of David's first son that he had with Bathsheba. Second <clears throat> Samuel 12, verses 18 through 33. <clears throat> it says, On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? We may do, he may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead, and David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he, when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. We see that David fasts and prays up until the time of the child's death, and then he doesn't pray anymore. Certainly, having seen such a grief, probably being also filled, seeing, seeing I can't imagine it's, it's one thing for your child to die, but to know when it's specifically for a punish or a discipline for your own sin, right? Um, 
I imagine if, if there was something as purgatory or maybe a limbo where infants go or the unborn, as, as Catholics say, um, why would he stop praying? I imagine he would continue. Um, and yet it's clear that, according to David, there, there's no benefit. Why, why should I fast? Right? I can't bring him back, meaning I can't do anything by my fasting and praying for him now. I shall go to him, right? But he will not return to me. Now, really, much of Rome's arguing to pray for the dead is totally dependent on their false doctrine of purgatory. Our confession doesn't mention purgatory explicitly, but it does kind of hint at it briefly in chapter 31 uh, of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead. It explains that there are only two places to go after death before the resurrection. And even after the resurrection, there's only two places, right? One is hell, uh, heaven or hell. It says at the end of paragraph one there, besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. There's no, no third place there, right? When it comes to the doctrine of praying for the dead, if you remove the doctrine of purgatory, you've basically taken away the doctrine of praying for the dead. It's entirely dependent on it. Even Romanists, as far as I know, they don't pray for the dead who are in hell, nor do they pray, they pray to the saints in heaven, but I don't think they pray for them. Um, Andrew, Andrew Willett, who I've referenced a couple times, his, his enormous work titled Synopsis Papismi, it, it takes Rome to... Uh-oh. It takes Rome to task, like, point for point, of every issue we have with Rome. It's, it's very good. Um, but he says this, their opinion, meaning of the Romanists, is that the prayers of the living are neither available for the saints in heaven, for they need them not, nor for the damned in hell, for they cannot be helped, but only for the souls tormented in purgatory, who do find great ease, say they, by the prayers of the, li the living, and therefore we ought to pray for them. Now, in many ways, we could go on and look at all of their arguments for why they believe in the doctrine of, of purg purgatory. Um, that's not our task today, really. We'll, we'll deal with that later on when we get to uh, chapter 31 and all of that. Um, but really, if you take away purgatory, you've just destroyed their whole doctrine, um, their whole doctrine of praying for the dead. Andrew Willett says, the ground of this popish opinion of prayer for the dead is their superstitious device of purgatory. For none else do they hold it lawful to pray for, but for the souls only in purgatory. But there is no purgatory, as we have showed before, after this life. Our purging, using this purging in a very general sense now, is only in this life. Christ hath by himself purged our sins, Hebrews 1.3. Christ's blood is the chief and only purgation of our sins. There are also other inferior and ministerial purgings, whereby that sovereign pur purging is made beneficial and applied unto us, as the inward operation and work of the Spirit is compared to fire. There is also a purging fire of affliction, compared by the prophets to soap, which washes. There also shall be a third purging of fire in the day of the Lord, 
when the corruption and mortalities of our bodies shall be purged away, then shall our mortality put on immortality. But other purgings after this life, we acknowledge none. Seeing then that there are no souls in purgatory, and for none else it is lawful to pray, but for the souls tormented in purgatory, it followeth that we are to pray for none at all that are dead, he says. Now, he's using purging very generally there. Don't, don't think of it like, in, like our suffering somehow atone for our sins. Um, but he's saying, there, yeah, there's ways you can talk about purging, that Christians are purged, right? We'll talk about this even today in church or in, in service. Um, but once you get rid of purgatory, no doctrine of praying for the dead stands. Any questions? Any questions about that? Well, lastly, paragraph four says, uh, neither are we to pray for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Here, too, the confession is kind of doing several things. First, it is just laying out biblical teaching, as we've seen. We are not to pray for those who have sinned the sin unto death. Um, that comes from 1 John 5, 16 through 17. Turn with me there real quick. <clears throat> We've kind of dealt with this a little bit, I think, when we covered the doctrine of perseverance or assurance. Uh, and we looked at the idea of, you know, all those passages like um, blaspheming of the Spirit, the unpardonable sin, it's all the same thing that they're talking about. Um, and so we've already kind of dealt with this, but we'll, we'll interact with it here because it it's related to the confession. 1 John 5, 16 through 17. <clears throat> if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, there are many things that need to be expounded here. First, when he says that there is sin that leads to death, he is not saying that only certain sins are worthy of death, okay? We know elsewhere the wages of sin in general is death. Even the minutest infraction, if it may be called so, will get someone an eternity in hell. So that's not what he's talking about when he says um, one sin does not, does not lead to death. There are degrees of sin. We'll see this today, interestingly. Um, <clears throat> you know, legally, uh, sometimes attorneys speak about aggravating circumstances. It's the same thing with sin. This is why Jesus says, you know, it'll be much more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah uh, in the judgment day, right? There, it will be tolerable, and they will receive a lesser punishment, um, if you rob someone, that's bad. If you rob your grandma, that's bad. That's really bad, right? Aggravating circumstances. There are degrees of sin, um, but all of them get an eternal death in hell. For some, it will be a greater intensity, right? Rather, by death, John here is referring to what others in the New Testament speak of, such as the unpardonable sin, is referred to, speaking of the passage that Christ mentions, or apostate Christians turning away. The author of Hebrews mentions this, saying in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who for, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In all of these cases, there is apostasy and an impossibility of the forgiveness of sins. And this is why John says, don't pray for them. Their, their sins shall not be forgiven. It's impossible, so don't even pray with them. <clears throat> now, we've dealt with these passages before, um, as I said there, we, the, these sins, the sin leading to death uh, or the unpardonable sin, they are not simply the, the dying in a state of unrepentance and unforgiveness. That's not simply what it is. Rather, you can commit it in this life. It seems clear from the context. When Christ talks about the unpardonable sin, there he's talking about the sin against the Holy Spirit to blaspheme him. And in the context, he's referring to the scribes and Pharisees who are alive at the time, right? They have said the work of Christ and the Spirit is a work of a demon. Um, and yet they were still alive, yet they had committed such an unpardonable sin. John Gill explains, he says, um, he describes the sin unto death as follows. He said, it is that which is not only deserving of death, as every other sin is, but which certainly and inevitably issues in death in all that commit it without exception. And that is the sin against the Holy Ghost, which is neither forgiven in this world nor in that to come, and therefore must be unto death. It is a sinning willfully, not in a practical but doctrinal way. I don't know, I think it could be both. But he, I, it's, it tends to be, well, we'll see. Not in a practical but a doctrinal way. After a man has received the knowledge of the truth, it is a willful denial of the truth of the gospel, particularly that peace, pardon, righteousness, eternal life, and salvation are by Jesus Christ, contrary to the light of his mind, and this joined with malice and obstinacy. It's not just to like maybe turn away, it's just like, a, like a raging now against it. Um, he says, so that there is no other sacrifice for such sin, but there is nothing but a fearful looking for of wrath and fury on all such opposers of the way of life. Now, this is not, of course, said of true believers. The same apostle John who says, don't pray for those who, who uh, ha commit the sin leading unto death, he describes the same people who left as those who were not of us, Right? They were not true believers, and that's how we should read all these passages, because you can't lose your salvation, right? And yet, um, for such persons, we, we are not to pray. Um, the difficulty with this, uh, as, as we saw when we touched on this subject, is namely, first and foremost, you can't really know for certain if someone has committed the sin unto death exclusively. Um, there are cases, as I said, we don't, we don't take these passages um, <clears throat> as giving us hard and fast guidelines. Um, I, I consider myself, when I was younger, 
Um, I at one time professed Christ, though I was not a believer. I had been baptized. And then I denied him, and in many ways, um, I didn't have a lot of malice, but I, I definitely spoke ill of Christ and his gospel, and yet Christ forgave me. Um, I was saved, and my, par- my parents had been praying for me, right? I think of the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, you know, before he was Paul, he was Saul, but you know what I mean? He actually was the same, just two different kinds of names. Um, talk about malice and obstinacy against the gospel. Um, I'm sure there were many times when you go, that's a guy who's, who's sinning the sin unto death for sure, and yet God saved him, right? So we, we just have to employ carefulness with this. There are some people I know who are apostates, who are obstinate and all that, and I don't pray for them anymore because they just have such malice in their heart. And I know if I'm wrong, God can save them, but it's really like I'm just not gonna spend my time praying for you. You're raging against Christ right now. I'm gonna pray for those that are still open to hearing the gospel. Concerning uh, John's phrase, I do not say he shall pray for it, meaning the sin and the death, John Gill comments, the apostle does not expressly forbid to pray for the forgiveness of this sin, yet what he says amounts to it. He gives no encouragement to it or any hopes of succeeding, but rather the reverse, and indeed where this sin is known or can be known, it is not to be prayed for because it is irremissible. But as it is a most difficult point to know when a man has sinned it, the apostle expresses himself with great caution. So generally in such cases, I would say no. Um, and yet if, you know, there's a sibling, there's a child you know that you're praying for, I, not, not everyone who has just rejected the truth, that's not all the sinning, the sin unto death. It's, it's like a malice, it's a hatred. Um, and even then, you know, in God's, the thing is, if you pray for someone in that case, right? Like let's say there was someone who had truly committed it and you prayed for them, well, maybe you lacked a little bit of judgment or something, but God's not going to like, hold that against you one day, right? So it, there's, there's grace for that. But generally speaking, we, we should not pray for such persons. <clears throat> now, that's the first thing that, that the confession is dealing with when it talks about not praying for those of whom it is known they have committed the sin unto death. The second thing that's going on is still a bit of polemic against purgatory, because Rome argues um, from that passage for purgatory and for praying for the dead. They argue that the sin unto death speaks of what they call deadly sins or mortal sins as opposed to venial sins. If you committed a deadly sin and you do not receive forgiveness, you, um, I think you just go to hell. I'm pretty sure you go to hell if you commit a deadly sin This is why uh, suicide is a deadly sin because it's murder. So if you commit suicide historically for Rome, you don't receive Christian baptism, or I'm sorry, Christian burial because you are seen as you're in hell now. That's a mortal sin, right? Venial sins are sins that you committed. You didn't receive forgiveness. You hadn't repented yet in this life, and yet you go to be purged, right, in the life after this. That's what they say is for venial sins. Well, they argue then that from 1 John 5, the sin unto death are mortal sins. The sins leading not unto death are venial sins. Andrew Willett explains in the same section, he says that they argue that the apostle saith, 
There is sin unto death for which a man ought not to pray. That is, deadly or mortal sin, wherein a man dieth without repentance. But for other sins not unto death, whereof men repent themselves, it is lawful to pray. Ergo, we may pray for those that are departed not in deadly sin. For this place is properly to be understood of praying or not praying for the dead, they say, because so long as a man liveth, he may be prayed for, because all sins are pardonable in this life. Andrew Willett responds by saying, First, a sin unto death is not only final impenitency, but sin also against the Holy Ghost, such as was the sin of Judas and the Pharisees. Secondly, though we should understand it of final impenitency, yet it is but a sorry argument that some of the dead ought not to be prayed for. Like that's, like that's where your argument for purgatory comes from. And therefore, the rest may be prayed for. Thirdly, the text cannot be understood of praying for the dead. For the text saith not, if any man see that his brother hath sinned not unto death, but if he see him sinning. But the dead do neither sin, nor are they seen to sin. Like in the context, he's saying, if you see your brother actively committing this sin, or if you know someone who is actively committing the sin unto death, right? It's in this life that they're talking about. Fourthly, whereas you say that all sins are pardonable in this life, our Savior Christ saith contrary, that the sin against the Holy Ghost can never be forgiven, neither in this world nor in the world to come, okay? Generally speaking, for when reprobates commit that sin, it is unpardonable, as are all their sins, um, but that one especially um, in this life, even, even before they die, okay? But that's, that's also what the confession, that's why it mentions it here, kind of in close proximity to dealing with praying for the dead, because for Rome, those things were, were all related, and that was part of their argumentation, okay? Uh, what time is it? I forgot my phone at home. 2.40, all right, we have enough time. With the little bit of time we have left, let's go ahead and move on and read paragraph five. We don't really have time to get into it, but we can at least familiarize ourselves with a few things for next week, okay? So look at paragraph five of the Confession of Faith. The reading of the scriptures, preaching, and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious, re religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation, or humbling of yourself, with fastings and thanksgiving upon special occasions ought to be used in an holy and religious manner. Well, what this paragraph is really doing or starting to do is just lay out positively what are the elements of worship? What are the true uh, parts of worship? We, we've laid down the idea only God can define his worship. Okay, well, how has God defined it? And this, this goes to set set for this, set this forth. Again, the confession doesn't use the term element, but it refers to these things as parts of religious worship. Uh, let me see here. Okay. Now, this is interesting. This paragraph is not exhaustive. 
What I mean by that is if you look at all the things in it, it covers quite a lot. I would say it kind of boils down to three things. The Word of God variously administered, right? Either reading, preaching, hearing the Word of God, all those things. Singing is the next thing kind of mentioned, particularly, though not exclusively, the singing of psalms, right? But that, that's also tied in with, with the Word of God part, but it mentions psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. And then lastly, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the Word of God, singing, and sacraments. What's missing? What's missing from that? We do all kinds of other things, but generally, what's a big thing that's missing there? It starts with a P. What? Prayer. Yeah, prayer's not mentioned there, right? It's interesting, prayer is not there, but if you look at paragraph 6, it also calls prayer a part of worship. It says, neither prayer nor, uh, nor any other part of religious worship. So prayer is an element. As far as why they didn't mention it in paragraph 5, I don't know. That's a great Dr. Renahan question. I'm sure he'd be like, well, Ryan, duh, and he'd tell me some great reason. Um, generally speaking, though, so when we read paragraph 5, when we go through it next week, that's not exhaustive, okay? There are other things mentioned later in this chapter that tell us other elements or parts of worship, um, but, but the majority of them seem to be uh, in chapter 5. And when we come back next week, we'll begin to walk through those um, and, and talk through them. You can also see, see the similarity in the manner of all those things, as in the manner of prayer. Did you kind of notice um, the overlap there? It says that they are to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. All those things were kind of more or less mentioned when it talked about prayer, how prayer was to be done as well. That kind of applies there too. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that more uh, next week. Um, I will say a, a very interesting thing Jason and I are going through the confession and just kind of noting things, and uh, we figured the one chapter that we were going to just devote a whole meeting to would be chapter 22 on worship, because specifically, there will be a lot of things about the different ways that we do worship, uh, and so we really just scratched the surface, but it was interesting to start to kind of think more deeply, like the biblical practices of why we do things, like I raise my hands when I give the benediction, right? Um, he doesn't do that. And, okay, so we're going to have to talk about that. I, I don't think we both have to necessarily agree on that, but at least thinking, okay, well, why do I do it? What are the biblical grounds? Um, and so we're going we're gonna to meet next week to just kind of really focus on worship.